You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. The Apostle Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning and we pray, Father, that, Lord, you would give us understanding of these words, of these things we read. We recognize that Paul's the penman, but Father, you're the author, and Father, we look to you uh, that you would teach us and train us and guide us, uh, correct us even uh, in areas where we need correction. Encourage us, Father, for we need so much encouragement. Father, comfort us, for our hearts are heavy. Um, So, Father, we look to you, and we we pray, Father, uh, for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. We probably all have heard the words, all things work together for good. Um, you hear that a lot, don't you? Uh, all things work together for good. I mean, we hear it in the emergency room. We hear it in the funeral parlor. We hear it quoted in all kinds of contexts where uh, we're met with tragedy or with struggles or um, what the like. And um, you'll notice that I haven't said we hear the verse quoted all the time. I've said that we hear these words quoted all the time. Namely, the words, all things work together for good. I, in my experience, I, I rarely hear the whole verse quoted. Um, we'll often hear... Um, just these words, all things work together for good. Um, you know, when certain words are left out of this verse, it's no longer true. It's actually no longer true. I mean, um, one of the most comforting verses in all Scripture becomes a statement that it's not even true. Um, is it true that all things work out for good? Is that a true statement? I would say no, and I'm going to show that it's not a true statement. It is if we include the rest of what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 28, then it's God's word and it's completely true and you can count on it and find comfort and encouragement from it. But let's look at the rest of what Paul's saying here. What's Paul saying? Well, he starts with, we know. We know. Uh, Paul is alerting us to a truth. Uh, He says, we know. Who are the we? Well, we who have digested God's word. Uh, We who have embraced the gospel. We who have certainty of these things. We who have knowledge of these things. We who are embracing these things with faith. We who have assurance, uh, uh, certainty, knowledge, assurance, uh, certainly Knowledge, assurance of what? Well, Paul continues that for those who love God. Now, here's an important qualifier. 
that's often left out whenever these words are are spoken. Uh, that for those who love God, uh, what Paul is saying here is that what's coming next in the verse is not exclusive. It's it pertains to uh, a certain group of people, namely uh, who those who love God, correct? Um, those who love God. Now, notice what Paul is not saying. He, he, you know, he doesn't say that all things, or he doesn't say this, that we know that for everyone, all things work out for good. He doesn't say that. Uh, Paul is saying that we know that for those who love God, all things work for good. So the promise of this verse applies only to those who love God. And, and by the way, loving God is the great commandment that Jesus gives us, isn't it? Jesus is once asked um, a question in Mark 12, for example. The question is, which commandment is the most important of all? Mark 12, 28, and quoting from Deuteronomy in Mark 12, 29 and 30, Jesus answers, Quote here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So this is the great commandment. What is the great commandment? To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with all of our soul. All of the commandments can be summed up in really two commandments. That is the first one, right? The second one is is to love others, correct? So the promise of Romans 8.28 is exclusive. In other words, it's a promise that applies only to those who love God. And then there's another qualifier here, although in one respect it's not another qualifier. Continue looking at verse 8 with me. Paul says uh, later on in verse 28, uh, he has the word for those who are called according to his purpose. You see that? for those who are called according to his purpose. What does Paul mean by this? Well, there's three things that are important here in understanding and answering that question. And you all know quite well what those three things are, don't you? This first one's context. And the other two are context, aren't they? Uh, What's the context? Well, look to verses 29 to 30. In verse 29, for those... Uh, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Now there's our word called. And those whom he called, uh, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, um, there's a, a group of words here that form a link and it's often called the golden chain. Is anybody, how many have heard that phrase before, the golden chain? A number of hands went up. I believe the, 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 that that phrase originates from a book that was written by William Perkins, who has um, come to be known as the father of Puritanism. The book would have probably have been written in the later half of the 1500s, 1580 something, maybe 1590 something if memory is serving me correctly. It's very old. In fact, the, the English is so old that if I remember right, the word chain is spelled C-H-A-I-N-E. 
It's kind of cool, you know, spell things however you want, you know. I would get along great if I could just spell things the way I wanted to spell things. Because I can't spell anything. <laughs> so I could just spell it the way I want to, and that would be wonderful. Um, uh, golden chain. Uh, there's links here. Uh, let me point them out to you. In verse 29, Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he also what? Predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. There's the word called, which we're going to try to define here in a few minutes. Uh, continuing in verse 30, those whom he called, he also what? He justified, right? And those whom he justified, he, he also what? He also glorified. Okay, so we have five links here. We have foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, correct? Five links. Okay, we have a question on the floor right now. Namely, what does Paul mean by the word called? Well, let's answer that in the order it comes to us. Let's take a look at each one of these links and um, we'll discuss called as we get to it. The first link is the word for new. And I think the most common understanding of this word goes something like this, that God uh, foreknew, uh, he, he, he looks down the corridors of time, if you will, and uh, he foreknows all those who will choose him. And those whom he foreknew, those, in other words, those whom he looked, looking down the quarters of time, those who he foreknew would choose him, uh, those he predestines and, and so forth. Um, it's a very popular notion on the surface. It sounds really good because it keeps the popular idea of human free will, and again, I'm going to say the popular idea of human free will, it keeps that intact. Uh, and it also seems to be tidying things up between God's sovereignty and our free will. And I think you can tell by the way I'm phrasing this that that's not the, that's not the, the um, interpretation that I think is most accurate. Um, and I know it's not the interpretation that many of you wouldn't think to be most accurate. Uh, the problem with this position is it cannot stand under the scrutiny of the rest of Scripture. It ascribes to uh, the believer certain virtue that is um, foundational to their salvation. In other words, God looked down through the corridors of time and, and he saw one of us and saw that, okay, well, uh, they're going to make a really wise choice and they're going to choose Jesus. Well, it would be a very wise choice to choose Jesus, but um, those of you who are in Christ know that your choosing of Jesus really had nothing to do with your wisdom. I mean, would anyone want to be willing to admit that you're in Christ because you're a little wiser than your neighbor who's not in Christ? I can't think of one Christian that I know that would... that it has any level of maturity that would embrace that. So, you know, I'm in Jesus uh, because, you know, I'm a little wiser than the guys next door. I'm a little more righteous than the ones next door. I'm a little, you know, I'm a little better than the ones next door. Um, we wouldn't say that, would we? There's no one in this room that would say such a thing. Uh, we know better. It's all of grace that we've chosen Jesus. We chose Jesus, didn't we? But it's all of grace. It's in response to the grace that that God has given us. So, you know, I remember a long time ago wrestling with this and wrestling hard with this and driving Tammy absolutely nuts with this. Buying one book that said this, buying another book that said that and digesting all of this and going back and forth and back and forth. Um, uh, 
the scriptures everywhere make it clear that salvation is all of God. Um, John 3, 3, for example, Jesus famously answers Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, he says again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Or John 6, 44, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Or James 1, 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Or 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Or 1 Peter 1, 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Or Ephesians 2, 8, which is probably a verse we're most likely to quote, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. This is just a small handful of the many verses that could be cited. Just a handful of them. And if none of these verses are convincing, we've got Romans 9, don't we? Uh, Romans 9. And I will be there shortly. I'm saving those verses for their proper time, but let me give you a preview. Turn to Romans 9 with me right now. And look at verses, beginning with verse 8. Paul says in verse 8, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, And look particularly at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. You see that? They've done nothing good or bad. Um, It's that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call. There's the word call that we're trying to define. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see. Now, I don't need to tell you that people rail against this stuff and there might be someone sitting here this morning that's railing against this. Uh, but, you know, I, I have the... Un- comfortable duty of sharing the good stuff and the fun stuff and uh, the uncomfortable duty of sharing the other stuff that maybe isn't quite as fun to share. And I find that this particular issue isn't always fun to share. Um, People rail against it. I think there are a number of reasons we rail against it. And if you're railing against it this morning, listen, I understand completely because I used to rail against it too. And I think one of the reasons we... Actually, I have three reasons I think we rail against it. None of them have really anything to do with Scripture. They have everything to do with the culture we're carried along in, you know, because no matter how much we try, no matter how hard we try, we come to the Scriptures with certain uh, presuppositions, and these presuppositions are indeed very much uh, uh, conditioned on our life experiences, what we've been through, maybe even what we're going through at the very moment. And we have a tendency to read what we want to read 
I think that some of the problems really lie outside of Scripture, and I think it's due to at least three reasons. And one is we like to believe we're in control. We really do. Would, would anybody like to? I mean, would anybody like to stand up and say, "You know what? I don't want to be in control of anything. I just, you know, just want to be a free wheel rolling down the hill." You know, I don't have any control. It can go as fast as it wants. It can run into whatever it wants to. I'm just going for the ride. You know, if you if you're really truly embracing that, we need to have a talk because there's something wrong with you. We, we really want to believe we're in control, don't we? Um, secondly, uh, there's our entitlement mentality that we have, our entitlement um, attitude, if you will. We, we believe that we deserve this and we deserve that. I mean, uh, we deserve everything. We think we deserve the sun, the moon, and the stars as a culture, you know. We think we deserve a happy, trouble-free life. We even think we deserve salvation for the most part. And three, we think that if God gives salvation to one person, then he should give salvation to everyone. You know, it's like um, when I was a kid, I was, um, remember, I can't remember if it was a piece of candy or if it was a, uh, it was a piece of gum. I don't remember, but one or the other, I had it in my pocket. We're in the middle of class and uh, I put it, I unwrapped it and put it in my mouth. I began to either eat or chew it. I don't remember if it was gum or candy. And the teacher stopped. Now, Mr. Anderson, uh, that's when you pay attention. Now, remember that, Amanda, when you say uh, Mr. Anderson, <laughs> we usually pay attention. Um, yes. <laughs> Do you have enough for the rest of the class? Has anybody heard that before? Maybe today you don't, but back in our days. Does anyone have a, you have enough for the rest of the class? I remember looking around. Anderson, starting with A, I'm kind of at the front, the beginning here, and I'm looking around, and there's 25 people in the class. I don't have, I just didn't come prepared to give everybody a piece of candy. He says, well, if you weren't prepared to give everyone a piece of candy, you shouldn't have had a piece of candy yourself. And I remember thinking to myself, I thought about that a long time, and I'm like, I don't know what to think of this. It don't seem quite right. I mean, if do it, if I, I mean, maybe it's maybe that's proper etiquette. Maybe it's proper etiquette that I shouldn't put a piece of candy in my mouth and not offer one to everyone in the class. But do I owe a piece of candy to everyone in the class? I mean, when we go to lunch, I only carry one lunch bag. I don't have a lunch bag for everybody. Um, that's different. You're in lunch. O okay, well, it's just when you're in class then. I mean, how does this work? It, well, you see what I'm going at here. Um, you know, if, if one of you goes and buys a brand new Ford pickup that's really shiny and nice and you want to give it to me, that would be wonderful. <laughs> but I, if, if you, listen, if, and you can already tell, well, my, my response on this is, you can already tell my philosophy on this, you don't have to give one to everybody here. If you just want to give one away, it's, you can just give me one, and you don't have to give everybody one. You see, if we want to give something to somebody, we don't have to give everyone one, do we? Really? Um, does God, does he, have to, does he have to give salvation to everyone? We think, that he does, I think. We have a tendency to think he does. Unless we do something really, really 
that. Now, I've already kind of spoken to this third one a little bit, but let me speak to the other two. And, you know, first of all, we're not in control. I mean, our prayer lists make that really clear that we're not in control, doesn't it? When I was thinking about this, you know, how do I, how, you know, I know we're not in control, but I need to say something. I don't want to just say, well, we're not in control, move on. We're not in control. What better way to make that statement than to say, look at our prayer list. Look at all the prayers that are on our prayer list. Look at all the situations. Look at all the conditions. We're not, we're not in control. Secondly, we don't deserve salvation. I mean, every time we sin against God, every time we sin, we sin against God. And when we sin against God, we commit what R.C. Sproul calls cosmic treason. I don't know if we think about it that way, but um, we're sinning against the highest authority. And, and speaking of authority, I mean, in our culture, we're, we're really getting to the point where we almost don't respect any authority um, as a culture. Um, and then third, I've already said that God doesn't, you know, if God would choose to save one of us, not all of us, that's his prerogative. Um, the question we really should be asking is not why hasn't God saved all of us, but why has God bothered to save any of us? Um, and besides that, um, I think most of us would say if we do something really bad, we don't deserve salvation. I think most of us would be willing to concede that. If you do something really, really bad, you don't deserve salvation. Well, we've all done something really, really bad. Um, so we don't deserve salvation, but here's the beauty of God's mercy. Out of eternity past, God foreknew us. What does that mean? What does that mean? The word prognosco, it speaks of this intimate knowledge, not simply knowing about, but knowing intimately. It's not because of anything that we've done as we've seen of all these passages. It's not because we're wiser. It's not because we're brighter. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because we're more righteous. It's simply because out of the counsel of God, out of eternity past, long before we ever came to be, we existed in God's mind and he had placed his affection upon each one of us. He placed his affection upon us. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. We have a tendency to only think about things in time, the way, you know, in the order that, that things are happening to us. But uh, this is kind of a glimpse. Paul's giving us a, a glimpse of, of before time came to be. Back in eternity, out of eternity. There, in fact, there never was a time. Ask yourself this question. Are you trusting in Christ Jesus this morning? Are you embracing him with saving faith this morning? If the answer to that question is yes, God had placed his affection upon you out of eternity. In other words, there never was a day where he decided, you know, I'm going to I'm going to love Becca with a holy love. Or I'm going to love I'm going to love Laura with this love. No, it actually there never was a day where he didn't. There never was a time where he didn't. There never was a nanosecond where he didn't love you this way. Never. Never has been. Never will 
be if you're in Christ Jesus. Doesn't that warm your heart? It's not that he's looking down through the quarters of time. The biblical data doesn't support that. It's not that he's looking down the quarters. Oh, you know, Becky, she's going to choose to make the right decisions. No. No. Better than that. Becca is mine. Tammy is mine. Cody is mine. There never was a time. Never was a second. Never will be a time or a second where his affection is not upon you. And because of this, he predestined you. He predestined you. And now, let me back up just a second too, because I have something in my notes here I wanted to share. You know, Jesus speaks of this in his high priestly prayer in John 17. And in fact, why don't you keep your place in Romans and turn there. Let's, let's not, you know, we've pulled off along the road a little bit, and I just don't want to leave just yet. There's a couple summits I want us to see first. Look at, look at John 17. I don't want you to think I'm just making this stuff up. By the way, I'm not that creative. John 17 and verse 6. Jesus, now this is the night that Jesus would be betrayed. This is the night that Jesus would be arrested. His crucifixion is coming very soon. He's praying to the Father and he says in verse 6, I've manifested your name to what? To the people whom you gave me out of the world. Who are these people? They're those whom God foreknew. Yours they were and you gave them to me. Skip down to verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. See that? What a marvelous glimpse that the Holy Scripture gives us of the prayer life of Jesus between him and the Father. (coughs) Otherwise, we'd have to wonder, what do they talk about? There's a little glimpse of what they talk about. There's this group of people whom God foreknew. And he gave them to Jesus. That's the first link in our chain. I'm running out of time. I better pick up the pace here. Uh, we've got four more to go. Predestined. The word proridzo. It means to set apart from the beginning or beforehand. Uh, Freiburg in his lexicon says to decide beforehand, to determine in advance. Uh, Little Scott, another lexicon, says to to predetermine or preordain. God's word in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I'd love to say a lot about this this morning. Our time is short, so let me limit my comments to just just really two comments. One, biblical predestination is not fatalism. 
Okay, fatalism would teach that, okay, everything's already worked out and it's going to work out this certain way and it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I choose or what. No, no, it's more complicated than that. That actually is, would be simplifying it up, that this is not a true statement. Um, there are two things that we always got to keep in balance when we think about predestination. One is God is sovereign. Fatalism just says God is sovereign. It doesn't matter, you know. Uh, another error is to say, well, we're making all these choices and we have this free will that we can do whatever we want and there's no sovereignty. See, both of these are errors. They're both too simplistic. The biblical data is God is sovereign and we're making choices. And God works in the midst of these choices somehow uh, to accomplish His will. They ask me if I understand it. I do not understand it. I just This is what the Bible teaches. God is sovereign. And yes, we are making decisions all the time, aren't we? All the time we're making decisions. Um, before the end of the day, we're going to make countless decisions all the time. Both of these things are going on. Recognizing our inability to completely understand this, the character with the sunglasses on in your bulletin. You know, John Calvin, he once said that if you try to explain this, you fall. And he's recognizing our human inability to explain this. He says, when you try to explain this, you immediately once fall into a labyrinth upon which there is no escape. I don't understand it. I just know this is what the Bible teaches. So we have foreknew, predestined, okay, called. Um, if you'll recall, there's a question on the floor. You may have forgot what the question was. I, I, I only, I made sure I put it in my notes so I wouldn't forget it. And we get to the end of the sermon. Hey, you told us you were going to tell us what Paul meant by called. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, what does he mean by called? Well, when we think about calling in theology, we make a distinction. Uh, some of you are familiar with the distinction between the outward call and the inward call. Some have heard that before. What is the outward call? Well, right now I'm preaching the gospel. Um, I could say that, okay, um, uh, this is the human predicament. We've all sinned against the holy God. And um, the wages of sin is death. And now the wrath of God is upon us. But God has sent Christ Jesus. His, God himself has come in the, in the person of Christ Jesus. And he's come to do what none of us could do. He came to die for the sins of his people. And he went to the cross and he took the penalty of, the, of our sins in his place. On the third day he was raised. Now he's seated at the right hand. God the Father Almighty in session with God. And, and uh, that to appropriate this salvation, we must believe and trust in Christ. Now, everyone who is hearing this is hearing the gospel. That is the outward call. Now that the message is being recorded, I presume, I hope, I turned it on, I hope it's recording, uh, it will be put up on the uh, internet and people will be listening to it. Will all of the people that are listening to this message be believers? I hope so. Uh, actually, what I hope is that there'll be some who aren't believers will listen to it and become believers. But let's suppose a person listens to it and says, well, that's great, that's what you believe, but I believe something else. They heard the outward call. If they can hear my words and they speak English, then they can hear the outward call. They, they, they understand what I'm saying. That's the outward call. But we make a distinction between the outward call and the inward call. What's the inward call? Well, the inward call is when, um, just like the person who heard, hears the outward call, the inward call person hears the outward call, but something begins to take place inside of them. And they go, uh-oh, I have sinned against the holy and just God. 
Oh my, I mean, I, I have. Um, I have sinned. And, um, oh, there's a Savior. And so forth and so forth. Jesus, did He come to save me? You see, as the Holy Spirit begins to work with the outward call and begins to work inwardly in the heart of men and women, um, they, they hear the inward call, if you will. Let me give you a biblical illustration of this because we have one that is just, it's marvelous. You know the story in, in John 11 of Lazarus. Lazarus uh, he becomes very ill and his sisters, and he's a very close personal friend of Jesus, and his sisters summon Jesus. They're like, Jesus, you got to get here. A brother is ill. And Jesus delays. And Lazarus is ill. He dies. And he's buried. He's in the tomb for four days when Jesus finally arrives. And um, uh, Jesus says to uh, those who are attendant to the tomb, he said, listen, roll the, roll the stone away. And they're like, wait a second, Lord, it's been in there for four days. There's going to be an order, an odor. He says, no, roll the, roll the stone away. And they roll the stone away and Jesus calls to Lazarus outwardly. Lazarus. Come out. And Lazarus receives the call inwardly. And life is imparted in that dead body. And that dead body comes to life and begins to come out in in his burial clothes. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We cannot in and of ourselves respond to the outward call without the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The Greek word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2 is a very strong word. It's the word nekros. It means lifeless. It means dead. It also could be translated corpse. There is no life upon which to respond. And just as Lazarus had no life within himself, in and of himself, he could not choose to come out of that grave save the inward call of God. And if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you once were as lifeless as Lazarus, spiritually speaking, but you heard the call. And he called. And I hope you don't mind me for illustration, using your names. If you do, say something to me after the service, and I'll never do it again. At least I'll try never to do it again. But he calls. I mean, he calls. He says, Liz, come out. I don't know what's happened to me, but all of a sudden I kind of I like this stuff. You know, I didn't really like this stuff before, but I kind of like this stuff. I don't know what's coming over me. I kind of like it. You know, join the churches. I like it. What's going on? By the power of the Holy Spirit, you're responding to the inward call. He's calling you inwardly. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined. And those whom He predestined, guess what? He's not going to leave you lost in your sins and dead spiritually because His affection has been upon you from eternity past. He's going to predestine you. He's going to call you. And those whom he called, he also what? Justified. We've talked so much about justified. I don't think that we need to say a whole lot about justification. Um, Other than this, that the moment that we believe, the moment that we believe, as soon as we believe in saving faith upon Jesus Christ, we're immediately justified. We're able to stand in his court. Um, And those whom 
God justifies, he also glorifies. Uh, the last term de- deserves much more treatment than I can give it this morning, but um, glorification awaits all of us. It awaits all of us. And what is it? It's when we will be united, uh, our souls will be united to our glorified bodies and we'll be able to walk in heaven with uh, with Christ Jesus, and we'll be able to see Him like we see each other, and we'll be walking in a state that is sinless. And we won't be taking these painful prayer requests anymore because Jesus will have wiped away every uh, every tear from our eyes. He'll be wiped. He'll have wiped away every tear from our eyes. So much more should be said about glorified. There's only so much time, and our minds can only take so much in. But let's get back to. Um, Romans 8.28, in one of the most cited verses in the New Testament, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How does this work? Let's look at the nuts and bolts of this. How does this work? Well, we, we also have another wonderful illustration of how this works. We have a couple, actually, in Scripture, several. But the one I think is most detailed is, is the life of Joseph. And a lot of you would be familiar with the life of Joseph. I mean, Joseph is... Yeah, he, you know, he's apprehended. He's, you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's dad's favorite, you know. And um, there's a lot of jealousy in the family. There's some favoritism in the family. It's all messed up. You read it, it's all messed up. But um, the, um, the brothers, they just had enough. They apprehend Joseph and they, they sell him off into slavery. He's sold off to some Ishmaelites and the Ishmaelites carry him off into Egypt. And we read these stories and... You know, I don't know if we ever pause to think about how traumatic that would be. Could you imagine being apprehended by your family and sold off into slavery, having no idea where you're headed or what life's, what, what really, what's life going to be like? You're no longer free. Your freedom is now compromised. Um, he's carted off to Egypt and he's bought by an officer of Pharaoh named Potiphar. Um, Joseph has God's blessing. You say, What? How can Joseph have God's blessing? He's been sold into slavery. Now he has God's blessing. Everything he does prospers. And Potiphar recognizes this and puts Joseph in charge of his whole household. And everything seems to be going pretty well, though I think at this point Joseph would much rather be back in his homeland with his family. Let's not forget that when we, you know, we can read this story and think, well, life's all better now, you know. Joseph is doing great. I think he'd rather be home. I don't think this is where he wants to be. Things aren't like super good here, but they, they're not super, super bad at this point until Potiphar's wife, you know, Joseph's a handsome fella, you know, and Potiphar's wife starts eyeing him up and um, Potiphar's wife, you know, she tries to force herself upon Joseph and he, he runs out, he flees. So she goes to her husband, she's infuriated. She goes to her husband and says, you know, that, uh, that Hebrew Joseph tried to force himself on me and Potiphar's infuriated. And he orders Joseph to be arrested. And now he's in prison. Things are just going wonderfully, aren't they? Now he's in prison. And he's in prison for a long time, isn't he? It's not just a couple of days. He's in prison. And uh, along comes this incident. Uh, you know, Pharaoh gets upset with his cupbearer and, and the baker, chief cupbearer and chief baker. And um, they, uh, uh, he throws them in the slammer. Now they're all in the slammer together. And um, the one night, the cupbearer and the baker both have dreams. And by the way, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. So let's 
be careful with what I say next. I always like to qualify that. Um, they have these dreams, and and uh, Joseph interprets the the dreams, and his interpretation interpretation of the dreams comes to pass, and. Um, Things are great for the cupbearer. He's restored back to his service with Pharaoh, but things aren't so good for the baker. Does anybody remember what happens to the baker? Uh, according to his dream, he's going to be hanged in three days. And again, let, let me stop right there just for a second. When we run around saying all things work together for the good, um, hello, let's be careful saying that to people. Let's be careful saying that to people. If we take it away from the other things, it's not even a true statement, is it? Okay. Um, two years go by. Joseph's still in prison. Two years. With really no prospects of ever being released. Pharaoh has a dream. And it, you know, the cupbearer remembers... Uh, Joseph and uh, Pharaoh wants his dream interpreted. Again, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. There's a lot of things going on here that that we're not to we're not to model that the scripture condemns. But Joseph is able to interpret the dream, and Joseph is then raised to number two in command in Egypt, isn't he? And the dream concerns a famine that's coming and Joseph is able to lead Egypt to prepare for the famine and a, a whole bunch of lives are, are spared starvation because of this. Okay, all things are working together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Joseph very clearly loves the Lord. He follows the Lord very clearly. He is called according to God's purpose. Ultimately, this works out for his good. But what about Potiphar, uh, Potiphar's wife? Um, is all things working out for her good? Well, we don't know what become of Potiphar's wife. We really don't know. Um, scripture doesn't tell us, but assuming that she was unrepentant, did her role in the life of Joseph, namely falsely accusing him of forcing himself on her, is that working for her good? There's no way it's working for her good. In fact, if she goes unrepentant of this, it's working for her judgment, you see. So it's not a true statement that we can't just blanketly say to people, all things work together for good, like you hear it all the time, all day long. It's not a true statement if we take the other parts away. Um, it's not a true statement. When I was in Bible college, I was still doing my undergraduate work at Geneva. I remember a test and... I was trying really hard back then. I was trying really hard, and I wanted perfect papers. I was a perfectionist this way. And I remember this one exam I took on the Old Testament. I had 99 on it. I missed one question on this. And the question that I missed, I'm so thankful for it, the question went like this. Who said these words? Quote, as for you, you meant it. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, end of quote. The question read, who said these words? Fill in the blank. I couldn't remember who said those words. I'll tell you who said those words. It's because I missed this question, I still remember it. If I would have got it right, I wouldn't remember any, I don't remember any of the other questions. I missed this one. I got it. 
Joseph said these words. Joseph. Yeah, Joseph, the one who was sold into slavery, the one who was falsely accused of, of attempted rape, you know, the one who was in prison, that guy. What did he say? Well, he was talking to his brothers one day and he says, as for you, you guys, you know, you guys that apprehended me, threw me in, a, threw me in that ox cart that carted me off to Egypt. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. He meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive today so that they wouldn't starve to death. See? That's how this works. That's how all this works. Uh, was it good for everyone involved? No. It wasn't good for everyone involved. It was good for a lot of people. I think we could say it was good. We could say that it was good. Let's go back to Potiphar's wife. We could say it was good for her if 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 we were to say, well, she was kept from starving. It was good for her in the fact that she was kept from starving. But if she doesn't repent again, she's just storing up more judgment for herself. Uh, so it's not good. All right. In conclusion, what do I call a sermon like this? I mean, you know, I've learned that when you can't come up with a title, it's probably because you don't have any focus. Sometimes when I'm writing sermons, I go, what am I going to call this? And I don't know what to call it. And I'll be looking at it and I'll be like, well, you don't know what to call it because you don't have any focus. It's just a bunch of stuff. Why don't you call it unfocused? And it'll be a, the sermon will be unfocused. We'll just call it that. Um, well, I think there is a focus here. What have I been laboring? I've been laboring to try to apply Romans 8.28. So let's call it applying Romans 8.28. Let's call it that. But then someone will say, well, yeah, but Rick, most of your message has been about how it's misapplied, not about how it applies. Okay, let me say a few words about how it applies because our hearts are heavy. There's been some things that we've prayed for this morning that are very, very heavy. Our hearts are heavy this morning. Let's apply it. What does this, what does the application, I'm going to give you three words. I'll give you complete, certain, and comfort. I like it because they all start with seeds. Isn't that cool? Complete, certain. It sounds like an S, you know, but it does start with a C. I don't spell that bad. Um, <laughs> complete, certain, and comfort. Three C's. It's complete. Listen, in my house right now, there's some unfinished projects. You've been to my house, you know. They're there. And I have a sneaking suspicion I'm not alone. And maybe in some of our other houses, there's some half-finished projects. We have half-finished projects laying around, don't we? In God's kingdom, there will be no half-finished projects. Out of eternity past, if you're in Christ Jesus, God has set His affection upon you. I don't care how you feel this morning. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, God set His affection upon you. And... The Bible says he foreknew you. Now those who he foreknew, he also what? Predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also what? Called. Those whom he called, he what? Justified. Those whom he justified, he what? Glorified, you see. It's complete. It's going to be complete. It's not going to go halfway and miscarry. It's going to be complete. It'll be complete. Secondly, it is certain. I can say it is certain because it's not up to us. It's not up to some decision that we're going to make. Although we do choose Christ, don't we? But we choose Christ in, in response to His grace, in response to what He is doing, you see. It's not up. It's, it's ultimately not up to us whether we come, come, 
uh, I shouldn't say it's not up to us whether we come to Christ or not. That's not true. But this whole thing of salvation, salvation is in God's hands. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, we must choose Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. We must choose Jesus. We must choose him. But we do so in response to what God is doing in our lives. So it's it rests in in, in really in the, the foundation of our salvation is not in us. The foundation of our salvation is in the fact that God foreknew us. That God foreknew us. So he predestined us. So he called us. So he justified us. And he will glorify us. Um, and if you look at the verse 30 with me again. Notice at the end, Paul says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you look at the tense of that. Um, it's like it almost like it's already happened, isn't it? Um, ask yourself this question. Have you been glorified yet? I looked in the mirror this morning and I, I hope I haven't been glorified yet. We haven't been glorified yet, have we? Um, but Paul, Paul is speaking like it's already happened. Um, he doesn't say that one day we'll be glorified. He, he says that he glorified as if it's already taken place. Now, how can Paul speak of this as if it's already taken place? It's because we can have complete certainty that it will. You see. Because it rests in the divine counsel of God and there's no half-finished projects. It doesn't matter how we feel this morning. If you're in Christ Jesus, this is certain. And lastly, we have comfort. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. This is meant to comfort. It's, it's meant to be applied to believers when believers are struggling. We take this prayer list this morning and there are a number of you struggling this morning and I can say to you, I can say to you that all things are ultimately working for good. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, they are. I can't say why things happen. Why do things happen? Why do, why do these things happen? Uh, I don't know why they happened any more than Joseph would have known why he was being carted off into slavery or why he was in that prison. And about all these other things that are happening to people who don't seem to be professing faith, what do we say about all that? Don't, don't, don't be a fruit inspector. You do not know the heart of the people that are around you. We don't know their hearts. What we do know is God is really good. So when we learn about a student that has taken their life, what do we say? What do we do? What, do we, what would you say? What, would, what do you say? Look to the goodness of God. You can't answer all these other questions and they will drive you nuts trying to answer them. What you can answer is the goodness of God. You look to the goodness of God. Look to the mercy and compassion of God. Which takes us to the cross. That's where we see, where we most acutely see the, the compassion of God. When you learn your aunt has Alzheimer's and she has uh, lung cancer, what do we do? We look to the compassion and mercy of God. 
when we need strength for an uncle who's caring for, what do we do? We look to the mercy and compassion of God. When we have an aunt who's getting dementia, what do we do? We look to the mercy and compassion of God. We don't have the answers as to why or how this is going to work out. But what we do know is that that in the grand scheme of things, in the ultimate scheme of things, all of this is working out to the good of God's church. And that should be comforting, isn't it? What if we didn't have that? What if we didn't have that hope? That'd be rough, wouldn't it? Listen, folks, there's a lot of people that don't have that hope. And we don't do them any favors by telling them that all things work out together for good. That, that's a hurtful statement to say to somebody because they know it's not true. What do you mean all things work out together for good? How can you say this is good? Do you, know, you realize what's happened? Well, God isn't saying that. That's not what Romans 8.28 teaches, is it? This is all the better reason to become a believer, isn't it? You see, you see the powerful call to evangelism that Romans 8.28 gives us? All things do work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Well, wait a second. I don't love God and I don't think I'm called to his, according to His purpose. What do I do? Well, put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Well, you're going to stay on the outside of this thing? You're going to stay on the outside when you have such a clear message here? All things are working together good for good, but it's, it's, it's exclusive. It's, listen, it's for this group over here. If you're outside of this group over here, then it no longer applies. In fact, I've got to say the opposite is applicable. You see the powerful call there is there? Whereas when we run around just saying, hey, everyone, everything, oh, everything works good. You know, it's all working good for everybody's good here. Uh, you don't have to do nothing. Okay. I think we get the gist. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Oh, Lord. We thank you and praise you, Father, for Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. And Father, we thank you for the, the, the glimpse that we get out of eternity's past. We thank you, Father, for um, the fact that, Father, as unlovable as we each are, you would place your love upon us out of eternity and that you would set forth not only to foreknow us, but to predestine us, to call us, to justify us. And Father, you will glorify us. And it's so certain that we can speak about it as if it has already happened. And Father, we see that it is complete. We see that it is certain. And Father, we are comforted that ultimately, Father, no matter how we feel this morning, no matter how heavy our hearts are this morning, if we're in Christ Jesus, that we know that all of this will ultimately work together for good, just as it did in Joseph's life. Uh, it will also in ours. And Father, we thank you for this truth and for this comfort. And I pray, Father, that you will comfort everyone with these words, especially those who are really, really hurting, especially this morning, Father. And um, we, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.